But at the end of the day, you must make it very clear to yourself and the people that you're dealing with that you are only fulfilling a duty. And after that duty is fulfilled, that is not who you are. You do not take it personally. I am only doing my job. I am here to present the evidence to the court. I am not here to put you to prison. I am not here to 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 do wrong onto you. I am the conduit in which the state presents the evidence. The court ultimately decides. I am not here to do your harm. I am only here to present my the best case to the court and for the court to decide. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 11 of Seek to Speak's podcast. I'm Aisa and today we'll be having a very important discussion about the administration of justice in Malaysia, about how we can speak on behalf of others and how to keep to your purpose despite the adversity. And the person I am having this important conversation with is none other than Izzat Fauzan, a friend of mine who is also a deputy public prosecutor and has served in this role for the past five years. He was part of several high-profile prosecution teams like Najib Razak's SRC trial where the world saw our former Prime Minister being found guilty and sentenced to 12 years in prison for abuse of power, money laundering and breach of trust. In this episode, we talked about civil service being the conduit of justice, the mouthpiece of the government and those who have been wronged as well as how best to carry out these duties under the circumstances. This is a powerful episode which serves as a reminder to everyone about how significant our voice can be when we choose to speak up. So without further ado, this is Izzat Fauzan. Hi everyone, welcome to Seek to Speak's podcast, a podcast which aims to instigate ideas, empower expression, as well as spark speeches. Today we have a very special guest, a friend of mine, who also has a very big job <laughs> within Malaysia as he acts as a deputy public prosecutor. And today we're all going to be talking about what he does and how he does it well. <laughs> so thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so first question, let's look at civil service. You know, in this day and age where everyone is chasing paper and there's a general lack of trust in the government's machinery and the people running the show, why did civil service appeal to you and why public prosecution in particular? And maybe you can explain a little bit of what you do for our listeners who don't really know. I mean, when I was... In university, I was studying law back in UITM. Uh, criminal law has always been an area of interest to me. So for you to pursue criminal law has always been one of the two. Either you're on the side of the state or acting on behalf of the accused. So you're either trying to prove a crime committed or trying to prove a crime <laughs> was not committed. Or rather the state failed to prove that a crime was committed. So, you know, looking back at my conscience, I thought trying to... Obvious answer. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. So yeah, that's that's why I went into it. So let, let's explain a little bit to our listeners. So when a crime is committed, like you said, it is not a wrong committed on the victim, but also a wrong committed against the state, mm -hmm. as it is the state's laws that have been breached. Hence, a criminal case will be reported in the name of the public prosecutor as the state's representative against the name of the accused. In essence, you are the government's mouth mouthpiece, the way in which people get access to justice. How does this make you feel 
and to what extent um, does it affect what you do? It's significantly different in the sta- in the sense that there's always a bigger picture at stake. Mm. That I'm not looking at what my client wants, but rather I'm shaping the the legal landscape of of criminal jurisprudence in Malaysia per se. So there are always wider considerations as to com- when comparing to what the victim was aggrieved of. You are also thinking about the state's policy and how the state would like to move forward, and more importantly, it has to be consistent throughout. You cannot make a single decision in one case and and contradict yourself in a later case. Mm-hmm. It's always the state's obligation to remain consistent. So there must be certainty, yes, right? There must be certainty. Correct. So like I, I do know that when it comes to judges, they also take into wider considerations. For example, if this crime like drunk driving is more rampant, they are allowed to give harsher punishments mm-hmm. in order for it to be an example or to deter others. Like to what extent does your job allow you to think about wider considerations or <laughs> Doing what we do, you always need to be in touch with what's currently happening within the fabric of society. Therefore, generally speaking, uh, crimes are frowned upon and should never be committed. But there are certain areas that are more sensitive than most. So you need to be mindful with regards to how you manage yourselves and conduct yourselves. But more, but it's always about deterrence. Mm. But the more serious the crime, the more serious the punishment should be. So... So you always have to be in tune with what society looks upon and more importantly is that justice must also seem to be done and that's very, very important in what we do. So you always ask for for deterrent sentences and all that but you have to be in tune in the sense because generally we always ask for for the most severe punishment Mm -hmm. for any offence. But should the court I mean, at the end of the day, you're submitting, the court decides. Mm. So should the court decide on a punishment which is not as, does not reflect the severity of the crime, then you always study the matter and, and bring it up on appeal, yes. Okay, so it seems like you're quite exposed to a lot of people and stories that may be very difficult to swallow for a lot of people and for you to go on. Uh, is there a big win or a, like a milestone or a memory that you always hold on to when it gets difficult? Because I would imagine that, you know, going through evidence of like rape crimes or murder crimes is is difficult, like for anyone to go through. The way I've always approached it is that you, as emotional as something can be, I mean, your boss could have been murdered and you were tasked to prosecute or someone's daughter was raped and subsequently murdered. There has to be a degree of objectivity as to Mm -hmm. when you're studying the evidence. So as much as you want to throw yourself into the case, you need to look at it objectively and think reasonably. But of all the things that have kept me going was was when we we prosecuted the the former prime minister and the matter went up for four years. I think the matter went up for a good two years. Uh, We were in the court of appeal. Uh, yes, I'm talking about our former Prime Minister, Dr. Shunajib. You were on the... I was on that, that particular case and we were... I, I remember we were doing a matter before the Court of Appeal. Uh, that was the day my father passed away uh, and I was in court and could not be there with him. So I've always told myself that, that I have a duty and obligation to my family, but I also have a duty and obligation to the state. So whatever it is, is that I will always think back upon that moment and tell myself that uh, this was the best I could have done 
balancing both uh, my life with regards to my family and and my my obligations to the state, and always do my level best on both. And and that that particular moment in time. Uh, when I got the phone call, has always some, been something that resonated strongly with me, and continues to to drive me forward to do uh, what's best and do the right thing uh, for myself, uh, for the state, and more importantly, I've always asked myself if I were to decide in such a way, can I sleep soundly at night knowing I've done what I've done and I did my best, and that's something I, I live by until today. I'm so sorry for your loss, but. Wow, the state should thank you. I mean, I think we we talk about it all the time, like the degree of time and effort that you put in there. There are no official working hours, basically. You are on call. You're like a doctor, except for the government, I guess, Mm -hmm. and the sickness is crime. That must be really difficult for you to go to. And I just... I, I don't know what to say except thank you for your service. Oh, my goodness. So when you're a lawyer, you're always working for the best interests of the client. But, you know, being a DPP, obviously, from the way that you spoke, that you carry this responsibility of being the extension of the government. And by extension, the representative of the public. So the judiciary becomes the means in which you serve and the police force gives you the tools necessary to successfully make a case. And then, of course, there is your foe in court, which is basically whatever lawyer the accused can afford. How does all of these external forces affect what you do? And when I mean external forces, is like uh, the police officers, the judge, the other lawyer, the victim, the accused and their supporters. Like, does this affect your the work that you do at all? I I mean, it's impossible to say that I mean, it's unreasonable for for any person to come here and say that all these externalities don't have any effect on them at all. But uh, you see, the way I see the role that someone in my position is is uh, has to play is that his ultimate client will ne- is not his paymaster. His ultimate client, his his service is to the law. So he does everything that he does should be in accordance with the law. So irrespective of what the victim may say, irrespective of what the accused may say, irrespective of what the accused lawyers may argue, your primary and principal consideration will always be the public policy of the government of Malaysia at any given point in time. And more importantly, the law of the land as it stands of the day. So that will always be the guide to which you stand by and how you move forward. But with regards to dealing with all these external factors, you always have to not take things personally. Mm. I mean, things get heated up in court. You have your arguments with with your co-counsels. You have arguments with with your witnesses. But at the end of the day, you must make it very clear to yourself and the people that you're dealing with that you are only fulfilling a duty. And after that duty is fulfilled, that is not who you are. You do not take it personally. I am only doing my job. I am here to present the evidence to the court. I am not here to put you to prison. I am not here to 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 do wrong onto you. I am the conduit in which the state presents the evidence. The court ultimately decides. I am not here to do your harm. I am only here to 
to present my the best case to the court and for the court to decide. The other important thing for you to do is to know how to bring it across, to package it and to present your ideas across. So that's very much important. At the end of the day, it's pure hard work and, and knowing your facts, knowing what you're about to say and, and carefully packaging it and making it as persuasive as possible. But you also have to remember that at the end of the day, you cannot satisfy everyone. Mm. Someone's always going to disagree with you and you have to be the bigger person and always agree to disagree with someone else and just let the law take its course, basically. Yeah, speaking about hard work, which clearly you have done a lot of in this field of work, uh, when it comes to speaking, of course, a big chunk of the process is the preparation stage. The advice that I'm often asked about is how to be confident when you speak. And my response is always, in some shape or form, what you just said, which is putting in the work, having preparation and practice gives you the confidence to stand your ground and tell these people that this is what you're going to be talking about and it's nothing personal. I understand that a lot of your work is about presenting evidence, interviewing witnesses, working with the police, and also ensuring that you have the legal authorities to back up your case. However, sometimes witnesses don't show up or the story takes an unexpected turn in court because the other side was doing cross or the judge asks something that you don't anticipate. Like, how do you deal with such situations? These situations, what kind of mindset do you think is required to adapt to such unexpected outcome? When you're doing litigation, what happens, you know, the drama in court, what you see on telly is only 20, if not 10% of what actually happens. Uh, the, the bigger task of any lawyer, any litigator, prosecution or defense is the work you put in mm -hmm. before that. So, for example, a witness goes off tangent, you would have to need to have done all the necessary preparation before the witness puts on the stand. You never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. So you have to know what that person is going to say even before you put that question to him. So the best way, and, and I think, and this is not just for lawyers or prosecutors, this is for anyone in everyday life, is that before you stand up, before you were to open your mouth, mm -hmm. before you convey your message, you need to be very, very clear and understand what it is that you're talking about. But more importantly, you need to be sure and you cannot doubt yourself. You cannot be easily persuaded. But it does not mean that when you stand up, you're the only person in the room who's right. You need to be open to other ideas and other externalities as well. But you need to know what you're about to say and you need to believe in what you say. Otherwise, you may end up a bit shaky or otherwise. But at the end of the day, it's putting in the work before you even start. And that's half of the battle already won. Because mm. I would imagine, yeah, litigation when it comes to speaking out, um, at the end of the day, there is no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. And yes, thinking and speaking on your feet is not particularly <laughs> fun, but you do less of it if you really prepare yourself. And I think when it comes to you as well, I think what really drives you is purpose. Because I would imagine that um, with the amount of time that you spent in court, which is likely the whole day, and meaning the brunt work or the grunt work, 
grunt work, grunt work. <laughs> Most of what you do would be in the office after hours, you know. So speaking about your role in court, and by speaking, I mean examining witnesses, submitting your evidence and legal authorities, the more difficult and even vital part of your job, which is what you mentioned, you know, the pre-trial work, but also talking to your witnesses. I would imagine that regardless of what the crime is, talking to complainants, survivors and their families must be very, very difficult, especially to gain their trust, to get their full story and to also ensure that the court gets a correct picture of what actually happened. Can you tell me a little bit about the difficulties that you face in this week? The matters that I have conduct over usually involve a victim. I mean, the people I meet, I've always tell them after everything's done, they, they, they'll come up to me and tell me, thank you. I hope to see you again. My response will always be, you never want to see me again, because if you were to see me again, something wrong was either done onto you or you have done something wrong. I'm not a person you want to meet twice in your life. So speaking of that, I mean, half the time I'm dealing with victims. Mm. So when you say uh, victims, you're like people who have been wrong, the direct yeah. complainant. So you were either, you're usually a victim of an offense, be it... Um, a snatch theft victim or a rape victim or victim of trafficking in persons, people who has generally suffered abuse. So uh, people in nature, having gone through what they've gone through, they are usually very angry mm. and they're usually very distrustful of the people who approach them, taking into account what has happened to them. So it's very, very important when you're dealing with these people is to be empathetic and be able to, as much as it's important to be objective, you also need to be relatable. Mm. And you need to come off as a friend, someone you can talk to, someone you can tell your story to. Because at the end of the day, what happens in court is always about the narrative as to what happens, the mm. facts as to how things progress or how the crime occurred, which involves eliciting information from these people regarding something that was terrible as to what happened to them. And these aren't pleasant things that people want to talk about every day. So it's generating that, it's having that human touch of being able to remain objective, but also connect with the victims at the same time so that they have, uh, they trust you enough to know that you are there as a representative of the state trying to forward their cause, basically. Mm. So being relatable is just as important as being objective and it's a very, very fine line that you need to walk. It always starts off as you need to make it very, very clear to them that I am here, this is my job, this is what I need to do. As uncomfortable as it is for you, uh, we have no choice. Otherwise, whatever you've gone through would be in vain. So you make it very, very clear as to the role that you're about to play. Um, we also have the benefit of telling them that you are under an obligation to tell the truth. If you were to, to lie to me or to lie to the court, then there'll be penal consequences which may put you uh, in, in hot soup later on. So you come off as very initially, this is how I've approached it anyway. Authoritative. Authoritative and distant initially. But at the end of the day, you also need to be relatable and tell them that I'm sorry um, what has happened to you has happened. No one would want this to happen unto themselves. Um, 
I am not here as a conduit of you to take your revenge onto whoever wronged you. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. that they want vengeance. How yep. do you like? How do you? You explain to them the position of the law. You explain to them that yes, they were wronged, and yes, this is what the law says about what was done onto you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also make it very, very clear to them your the limited scope of what you can do. I am not here as judge, jury, and executioner. I'm just here. To speak on your behalf, you can't say you you can speak in court in so far as your testimony, but everything else has to be done through me. I am a vessel in which you forward your cause, but I am not here to do whatever it takes and and go against my ethics to make sure whoever wronged you suffers. Uh, that mm-hmm. is not my role. My role is to facilitate in the administration of justice, and more or less they've understood. But you also need to keep. A distance at a time, because after a while, they tend to develop some sort of attachment mm. that, that they think you're the savior, and you need to make it very, very clear of what you can do and what you cannot do for them. During this break, I would like to give you an update about Sick to Speak's female speaking club, Women with Words, a name that was chosen by all of you. Thank you so much for voting on this name. We will be having our first meeting at the end of this month, which is November. And the Woman with Words is aimed to be a platform where women and girls can deliver their speeches and share their views in a safe and supportive space. In the process, we hope to build confident speakers through speech practice, supportive feedback, as well as meaningful group discussions. Check out our socials at Seek to Speak in order to register for our first meeting. I'm super excited about the launching of this club because this is something that I've been meaning to do for a very long time. And since starting Seek to Speak. I found how incredible the feeling of expressing yourself can have on your personal development as well as how you feel as a person. So I want more women and girls to feel the way that I feel. And I think that this is something so personal and I would be really grateful if any of you feels the same way and would like to register for this club. I will include the link to the registration of the meeting in the show notes. So check it out. Okay, girls? Yeah, that's true, especially with a job that's very demanding. I think a big thing that people find difficult to do, especially women, is to say no. You know, that's part of the job as well. In terms of the people or the complainants that you had, you know, when you end a trial and when when a conviction is actually successful, like, do you see that these victims get closure? Do they feel good that they speak up? Because sometimes, for example, like sexual offences, some of these victims have the choice to report or not report. And obviously, when they do report, it goes through a whole trial where a lot of the times, especially for women, their character is also something that's brought into the table. And sometimes it's very traumatizing to go through this process. But do you find that after that process is done and the accused does get punished, do they find closure? Like, are they... Not happy, but at least satisfied. Some of them do, and some of them still think it's... Not enough. Not enough. I mean, see, the law works in a way that there's a range to mm-hmm. which the court may, may sentence you. And they'll ask you, why did he get a minimum? Or why did he not get the maximum, he or she? Um and I've always explained it to them that this is how the law works. The court has its considerations and the court has decided it is beyond us. 
I mean, you can appeal, yes, but what happens then is uh, is outside of your control. But generally, they do accept it. But half the time I've noticed is that this is just something that they want to move on and put behind yeah. them. So they, 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 they're usually very accepting as to what the court has decided. I guess where I'm getting at with that question is also the fact that, you know, we have a lot of victims nowadays. And I'm talking about cases which were not discovered by the police, but rather is prompted by complaints. That you have a lot of these victims like of domestic abuse or sexual violence that is very hard for you to come by. I mean, whatever the statistics that we have is always an underrepresentation of what's actually happening. So what I wanted to get that with that was that whether or not that whole process is facilitative of victims speaking out and that in the end, like you said, that they do get a kind of closure. Um, but in your experience, when it comes to going through the court process, are they quite sensitive to marginalized groups, for example, like children or women? Like, are you given a mandate or is the court given a mandate to tread this type of cases more carefully so that it's easier for the victim to speak and tell their story? The, with respect to how Malaysia has conducted itself mm. in, in, in sensitive matters involving victims who are children and underage, I think we've, we've got good progress in the sense that we are very, very understanding as to the trauma in which they went through and there are very sp specific provisions of law uh, put in place to protect them in the sense that they can give evidence in camera. They can, uh, meaning, uh, not, they're not in court. Um, we've got video, it's like a video conference where the, the victims are in a different room and they're oh, testifying. I didn't know yeah. That. So, so, I mean, there are these facilities that are put in place just so that the child is a lot more comfortable in giving the evidence. Um, so just to facilitate the process. So I think Malaysia has is pretty progressive in that sense, and we do make special allowances for special uh, for specific groups of people who. Like you may... have an SVU <laughs> order. What what's that show? I can't say. I mean, because I do what I do, I don't usually watch shows. Okay, okay, yeah, that's wrong. true. I mean, uh, so they are like you know they are witness tempering uh, laws. Laws against witness tampering, like an abuser wouldn't be able to contact. Yeah. I mean, we, we protect our victims in so much as we can, but more importantly, we try to facilitate and make it as easy as possible for them to, to tell the sto their story um, to the court. And I think Malaysia has been very, very progressive with regards to that regard. So, yeah. That's great to hear. I did not know that, you know, because it's always difficult to tell your story, especially one that's very traumatizing. Speaking of speaking, <laughs> so people typically choose not to speak because they're worried about what people would say or think. They fear public backlash, resentment, or embarrassment. I mean, in your field of work, I would imagine having to deal with a lot of that negative noise, not just from the accused, but from the their friends and family as well. For example, like you said, you were on Najib's SRC trial. It just concluded in the high court level where Najib was sentenced to 12 years of jail and find 200 million. You know, every day you don't just face scrutiny from the public who are watching your every move, deciding the standard of our justice system by how the case pans out, but also from Najib's supporters and the best lawyers money can buy, believing that the case is a political witch hunt, looking for the smallest loophole to leverage on. Do these sentiments affect you? 
or is it just white noise? Because I think a lot of speakers would like to know how do they tune out these doubts and insecurities. You need, like, like I like I said earlier, and and this that sense of back, purpose. Yeah, no, it's not so much the sense of purpose. It's having because your job is to present evidence to the court. And your job is to argue the best case on behalf of the state. And that's for lawyers, per se. That's for what I do. But for your average person, as you're conveying something, there has to be a reason as to why you're speaking up and, 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 and voicing out several concerns. So you need to believe in what you say. And that belief has to be grounded in facts. It's not something that you do because you're told to do it. It's something that you do because you believe in what you're doing as well. So irrespective of what the other side can say, irrespective of what um, what criticism may be placed onto you, so long as you can tell yourself that uh, I am doing this for all the right reasons, so you, you kind of tune everything else out as well. Uh, Just the confidence that you also have, like, the facts to, like, you're speaking the truth. Yeah. You know, and... There shouldn't be any fear yeah. in speaking the truth. Being in court is not so much as what happened, it's what you can prove. Uh, That's so, a good point. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, I mean, you can tell the world that this was what happened, but when, it, when, when you're in court, it's not so much as you telling your narrative, it's you being able to back it up. So, going back to preparation earlier, having prepared and studied the case before you, you would have good grounds to believe that. Whatever you're saying didn't it happen, you know, and you're able to substantiate what you are submitting before the court or the case that you're propagating forward. It doesn't have to be Najib per se, it can be any other case. Uh, so long as you are grounded in the facts and you believe in what you're presenting, there should be no issue irrespective of what you are presenting. You need to bear in mind that there will always be people who disagree with you and you need to be willing and ready to to accept the fact that people will disagree with you, whether or not you want to agree with them is a different matter. But what's important that helps you present your best case forward, your best foot forward, is to have prepared yourself for what you're about to say and know your facts before you open your mouth. Does it get frustrating? Sometimes you work on instinct. You've done a lot of cases before. You know when someone is telling the truth. You know how a story usually pans out. Does it get frustrating that sometimes you don't have the evidence to back it up because maybe the police officers didn't do things through SOP and suddenly the evidence is inadmissible? Or maybe the lawyers found a loophole that was beyond your control and so the accused, while you know the facts of the matter that they maybe do deserve that punishment and they don't get punished how do you deal with such frustrations I, like do you take it personally like when yeah, you lose a case I, I understand i mean you you cannot take it personally because the moment you start taking it personally is when things get uh, the lines get blurred so that's why it's very, very important to be objective as much as you can. And more importantly, the preparation before you take the matter to court, before you decide to, to pursue a case, has to be done. And you have to be certain that uh, that you have what it takes to, to prove your case. Because being in the position that, we, that, that I am in is basically, you see, as much as I'm forwarding the case on behalf of a complainant, I am also actively 
affecting someone's life. Mm. As much as you're innocent until proven guilty, the public perception that you were charged with an offence, that a charge is hanging over you, what people say towards the accused, you have to be very, very mindful of that. So you're not even you're not there to 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 right a wrong simply. You're also there to be sure in that it happened. That it did happen and you are satisfied that this person did in fact do it. Therefore it is justified for you to subject him to the criminal process. I mean if you if you act on scanty evidence, then you're not exactly being a responsible prosecutor because you're subjecting mm. someone who may be innocent or otherwise because it's your job to prove yeah. their guilt and that's not fair for them. And that's something you have to be very, very mindful of. It's not so much as the victim, you're also thinking about this other person who has his livelihood, who has his wife and his family and how it affects him and his how role in society. charge hangs over yes. the head. Like, but how then do you decide when to appeal because maybe the punishment is too low or maybe because you think that the judge made an error in terms of deliberating the evidence? Do you usually do that? Do you appeal against sentences where the accused goes free or the accused gets like a slap on the wrist? Does that happen often for you? Yeah, we do uh, in certain instances. And as I've stated earlier, it's always based on what has been decided before. It's always evidence. It's always evidence. It's always the law. It's never on emotion mm. uh, because you you can't afford to be emotional uh, doing what we do. So it has always, you always need to substantiate every single choice, every single action that you take and be ready to explain should you be questioned or queried. Otherwise, it becomes very, very subjective and it's open to abuse, which, which, uh, it's not something that I'm agreeable to. So long as you can substantiate what you're about to do mm. uh, and have good grounds for it. It's definitely not like in the movies where suddenly the lawyer does a crying appeal to the jury or to the judge. That doesn't happen. Like you don't actually use emotional sentiments, yeah. right? Because And it's not just you, it's the judge as well that you all hold that same degree of professionalism and objectivity. The judge may be thinking the the questions that may be troubling him, mm, though he may ask it, he may be thinking about it. So you need to be wary as to how a person is reacting towards what you're saying. And that's not just for judges per se. I mean, if you're talking to a, to a crowd and you need to be able to read the room and, and know whether or not they're with you or they don't understand what you're saying, you need to be very wary of what's going on and also be able to adapt and, and answer those concerns. The most important thing you need to do is you need to know who your audience is. If it's a judge, then it's a judge. If it's a, a, an audience of your peers, then it's something else. So you do have to put on different hats and be very wary as to um, who you're speaking to, the level of understanding. I mean, there may be instances when you may need to um, simplify things so that they understand, leave out the jargon. So at the end of the day, it's always knowing your audience, knowing who you're talking to and how best to carry your message across so that they understand what you're trying to present to them. Because you could be the smartest person in the room. You could be heavily relying on your technical know-how and rely on jargon. But if no one in the room understands what you're <laughs> saying, then, then then completely falls into deaf ears. So the primary consideration that you always need to have is know your audience, know who you're talking to, 
and ask yourself how best do I send my message across. Yeah. Yeah, so true. I mean, that's why I always tell my students that eye contact yep. is probably one of the most important form of nonverbal communications because it enables you to read the room and read the crowd. And it's not just about what you think they would like or dislike, but as you are in front of them, how can you change to make information more easily accessible to them and for them to be more persuaded? So at the end of the day, with how many years of service do you have? I think I've done this for a good five years. Yeah, wow, it feels okay. longer, but yeah, it's only been it five years. It probably feels like a decade. <laughs> so if you think about all the hours that you put in, and the amount of hours that you should have in a working day, it's probably doubled. Probably, probably a lot more. <laughs> so, what advice would you give to those seeking a life in civil service? Uh, civil service, I'd say, is rewarding in the sense that. You are not working for a client. You are not serving your billables. You are not working for people who can pay you. Uh, <laughs> yes, last one, most important. Yeah. I mean, I mean, your 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 victims don't don't pay you. There is no benefit that you financial benefit for you to stand to gain. Should you win a case? Should you lose a case? Your only reward is having done what is right. And having done your best for the people who you are speaking on their behalfs, basically who have no voice. So so long as you take, uh, you see that as something your contribution towards society, then yeah. I mean, this is not somewhere you go to be rich. This is where you work to serve the people and you work to serve the law. If that mm. is your interest and your passion, then by all means. So if that is a calling that resonates with you. Yep. This is definitely the best place to do so. <laughs> Well, the only place to do so. So thank you so much for being here. At the end of every episode, I always ask this of my guests, which is basically, is that? Falzan, <laughs> why do you seek to speak? I am there as a voice for the people who have been wronged. And I need to do that to the best of my abilities because this is where. And this is the only avenue for them to seek recourse to the wrong that's been done towards them. So that is basically why I seek to speak and that's why I do the best that I can do in aid of these people who have not no one else to turn to, basically. Yeah, you are their only option. You are their hero and saviour. You are the, as Batman would say, <laughs> the, the hero that they don't deserve but they need. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm thank really grateful for having, for having you here. All right, so yeah, guys, join civil service if all of this appeals to you. I, I mean, you guys can't see him, but he looks utterly exhausted. But at the same time, content. Would you <laughs> I say, say so. Yeah, yeah. You content? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode and for all of for listening to all of our previous episodes if you are a loyal listener. 
We are taking a break in December to work on season two, and we are really thinking about how to better serve you as our audience with the conversations and episodes we are going to be having. So we would like to hear from you, yes, you, about what you like, what you don't like, what you want more of, what you want less of, what topic you want us to discuss or guests you want us to approach, what you would like to hear, and even maybe even a different structure that you think we should adopt. You know, please, please, please reach out to us on our socials at seek to speak or email us at hello seek to speak at gmail.com i love love hearing from you and i just really want to know what you guys think because at the end of the day we do these conversations in order for someone out there to benefit and if that someone is able to tell us how we can benefit them more we would be above the moon above the clouds above everything basically because we will be super super happy and grateful so please please reach out especially because it will be a long time before you'll be hearing from me anymore after november so please i want to hear your voice speak up and engage with us but until then i'll talk to you next time